This is the Daily Theology Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Oki. This will be our last episode for 2018, which is fitting since I'll be talking about the apocalyptic with Professor Micah Keel of St. Ambrose University in Iowa. In this episode, we talk about how Micah's experience of studying abroad prompted his interest in theology, his time volunteering in Belize, and his thoughts on technology in the classroom. We also discuss his book, Apocalyptic Ecology, and how it relates to contemporary discussions of climate change. I also have some book giveaway news. Been a while since our episode with Daniela Jupin-Jerome, but I realize I never announced the winner of her book, Connecting Towards Communion. So, congratulations to Deacon Jean Beale, who will be receiving that book soon. Additionally, our last book giveaway of the year is for Micah Keel's Apocalyptic Ecology. As in the past, you can enter by retweeting the tweet announcing this episode, by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts and emailing a screenshot to us, or by becoming one of our Patreon supporters. The contest will be open through New Year's Eve. Thanks so much for a great 2018, and I look forward to bringing you many more interviews with great theologians in 2019. Thanks, as always, for listening. So today for the Daily Theology Podcast, I'm talking with Micah Keel of St. Ambrose University. Micah, thank you for being here. Hey, thank you so much. Uh, I appreciate it. Absolutely. As you know, as a longtime listener of the podcast, the question I like to begin with is, how did you get into studying theology? Yeah, it's a great question. I'll try to give the shorter version. I, I grew up in a town called Stillwater, which is east of St. Paul in, in Minnesota. My father is an ordained pastor in a even in a church called the Evangelical Free Church of America, a sort of fundamentalist upbringing. Uh, my mom got all the kids in school and then went back to school and, and became a social worker. So that's uh, where I started. So I guess being a theologian, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree in some sense. But I, I did my undergrad at St. John's University. I don't know exactly how I ended up there. As a, At the time, I was kind of a fundamentalist, but I ended up at... <laughs> Ended up in Collegeville, and I'm very glad that I did. And through a study abroad trip, and I studied in Athens and Istanbul and Rome when I was in college, uh, and then just talking to the, the great monks and nuns that I met up there, I just couldn't reconcile my understanding of God, with, with which I had grown up, with the things I was learning about the world. And a lot of this for me came down to an experience I had in, in Istanbul, where I watched a man teaching his son how to pray in kind of a small little neighborhood mosque. And I just thought, all my life, I've said that these people are going to hell. <laughs> and why? Because they had the audacity to be born in a different part of the world than me. Mm. But I just couldn't, I couldn't, my upbringing couldn't fit that into what I'd been taught. And so one thing led to another. I ended up converting to Catholicism mm -hmm. at St. John's by, during my senior year. So okay. from there I went, I, I volunteered for a year, and I, I got was really interested then in studying theology. I was actually a music major, um, so I didn't really study theology at St. John's beyond the general ed requirements. So then I went off to get my MDiv at Princeton Theological Seminary, stayed there for the, for the PhD. And uh, so it was sort of that you know, kind of some of those really big questions about God, the world, humanity, that really started my my trajectory. So, so you said you weren't really sure exactly how you got to Collegeville. Did you 
Did you Actually, know what? I do know. I do know how I got there. It was because of a, my girlfriend at the time. So, so thanks for bringing that up. But uh, we broke up. My, we broke up at my graduation party from high school. So okay, uh, fair by enough. the time I got there, we were not an item anymore. Fair so enough. God works in mysterious ways. <laughs> did you? I mean, did but did you know it was a Catholic university? Did you like? Did oh yeah. You, okay. Yeah, absolutely. And my parents were pretty concerned about that. We okay. went, uh, they wanted to make sure I could go to the, the intervarsity group. Mm -hmm. It's a, a group that I was involved in part of my time there. So yeah, they were aware, we were all aware of it, but I think, you know, it's a, it's a good school. It's a, it's a beautiful location physically mm -hmm. out in the woods. So there were a lot of great things about it. So yeah, we, I mean, at my, at St. Leo, we have a lot of students who similarly come from, you know, fundamentalist backgrounds and, I'm not always sure if they know that they're coming to a Catholic school or not. Like, that's one question I have for them. But I think, I mean, I think similar to you, a lot of them have this experience of they're not necessarily prepared for it and then don't know how to react to it once they're there. Yeah. And so yeah. did you have, you know, like an early theology class where you just you wanted to fight with the teacher the whole time or? Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah, no, it was sort of an intro to Bible course. And Charles Boberts, who, who's a friend of mine now. And he made you see things that you can't, I, and I, I say this to my students and in my classes too, it, the Bible itself will undo your fundamentalism mm. if you actually read it. Mm -hmm. He made me read it. Mm. And I, looking back on that, I, I can't believe some of the things that I thought were the case about scripture, mm -hmm. but it, it's not the, it's not an easy thing then to sort of once your house crumbles, it's not easy to put those pieces back together. But yeah, no, I, that was before I studied abroad. So I, I suppose some of the, the the seeds had been planted for for the changes that were gonna that mm -hmm. were gonna happen already in that course. Yeah. If I can ask, was the mm -hmm. I, I'm a I'm a convert to Catholicism myself. Right. Was, but I, I didn't come from a particularly religious family, so it was more. It it was weird. I think that I was doing this, but it wasn't. You know. Uh, it wasn't a major controversy in the family. Was it Was it a big problem for you? Was it a big controversy or big issue? Or No, I, and I'm very fortunate that none of, to, to the extent that I have a fundamentalist hangover, none of that I think is, is tied up really with my parents at all. Mm -hmm. So I, I'm very fortunate in that way. They, they never really pushed things, and I think they, I don't think they ever felt fully comfortable in that world. And they, I think, have actually sort of been on their own spiritual journeys, mm -hmm. part of which I think was, I'd like to think, and I, I don't, I hope it's not arrogant to say this, but part of it was them experiencing vicariously the things that I had experienced and, and their other children too. So I, I think they would agree with that. So, so I, I'm, I'm lucky that that's not, there's no tension there. I, I don't think so. Okay. Yeah. Well, good. And so then you went on to Princeton Theological Seminary. I also am curious then was, what was it about Princeton that drew you, particularly in light as uh, what would have been a recent convert to Catholicism, mm -hmm. to then go to a Protestant seminary? It, does, but... it doesn't make any sense when you look back on it. I, I didn't know what I was doing. I, I talked to, uh, that, that might be the theme of this podcast, I don't know. I talked to, I talked to people at St. John's and they, they suggested to me to go look at the best programs in the country. Okay. So they mentioned Yale and Harvard, uh, Duke, Princeton. So that's what I did. I got into some of those. I didn't get into all of them for the, the Master of Divinity. And then Princeton offers a lot of money. Yeah. And then the other the other fact, so I this was in the midst of that. I actually deferred 
my acceptance there for two years so I could go work in, in Belize. But then in the midst of that also was dating the woman who would become my wife. Mm-hmm. And so she got into Mason Gross School of the Arts at, at Rutgers in, in New Brunswick, New Jersey, which is about 30 minutes from Princeton. So it worked out well for both of us. Okay. And we could both get our master degrees. Okay. So, yeah, it was a little weird. There, there weren't a lot of Catholics at, at Princeton. There were a couple, but not many. I was sort of an anomaly, I think. But especially once you're sort of in the world of Scripture, there's quite a, you know, about 95% of what we do as Catholics with Scripture uh, within scholarship overlaps with with how Protestants do it. And yeah. they they got to it a lot quicker than, than we did, mm-hmm. uh, historically speaking. So I, I think it, within Scripture, it was not as, as much of a problem as it would have been in, a, in another sort of subfield yeah. of theology. Yeah. It's interesting sort of hear, as I hear your story and thinking about my own, because I, I also, as my, my last year of college, I became Catholic. And then when I was looking at master's programs, you know, I applied to a range and I, I got into Catholic programs and, and non-Catholic ones. And I ended up going to Chicago. And, and it, wasn't because I, it wasn't because I was refusing to go to a Catholic school, but there was something sort of attractive about I, in my own spiritual journey, was sort of trying to model myself on Jesus and the gospel of Mark. And so, you know, I, I had been baptized. <laughs> and had, no, 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 like not, not like the early part, the early part, really chapter one, because I, I had had, you know, this big, you know, this opening moment. I, I was baptized. I, I felt, you know, strongly called to this future. And so I felt I needed to go into the desert and be tempted next. And so I, oh, okay. I went, I went I, to I Chicago. Okay. <laughs> well, uh, with the wild beasts, as it says in Mark. Right? Yeah. So, <laughs> so, it, it, you know, it worked, uh, I think. Uh, I just. Think. Hard to know, I guess. So anyway, <laughs> the focus of your scholarly work is on scripture. And in what way, I mean, is that primarily a response to sort of navigating like the the fundamentalist background and the sort of insights you had in college and whatnot? Like, is that what, is it like you got set on a trajectory and you had to follow it through? Or like, how would you sort of think about or frame that? Yeah, I think when I when I did the study abroad trip and the sorts of questions I had coming out of college, they they were sort of I want to I want to get to the bottom of this. I want to mm. find out how this all got started. So I thought going to Princeton I would do church history. Mm. And I remember I Kathleen McVeigh, who's the sort of early church historian there. I remember she was my advisor and I sat down with her and the first thing she said to me was, "You lose a lot. We lose a lot of people to Bible." <laughs> And I, I said, I had a very direct response. I said, well, that's not going to happen to me because my, my upbringing had sort of wanted not to go there. Mm. And, but I took my first scripture course and that's exactly, that's exactly what happened. <laughs> Part, partly because I, I realized that within scholarship, it's, it's the New Testament field that kind of has ownership of those earliest decades mm-hmm. of, of the church. And I, I don't think I had really realized that yet. So that I think was that was part of it. There were questions I had that I that that led me to scripture, but also I think I was all I've always been somebody who was fascinated by interpretation. Mm-hmm. I think I, when I was in college, I had this moment where I was a music major, I was a singer, and so I was preparing for my senior recital, and I was doing this song cycle by Schubert, and I found myself in the middle of the night in the basement of the library reading a book about different theories about how to how to sing Schubert. Hmm. And I remember I kind of had this thought, what's what's wrong with you? <laughs> and um, so I, I think I learned something about myself that 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 is a sort of a broad skill, 
skill and set of interests about about how to do things in general that that translate to to a number of different disciplines. So and so now you're teaching at St. Ambrose, which is, I'm assuming, a Catholic school. Yep. Mm-hmm. yep. And you're in Iowa. So you're, in, you know, you're in the heartland, as people like to say. And the students that you have now, what is your experience of teaching them scripture? Is it comparable to your own experience growing up or your experience at Collegeville? Is it just biblical illiteracy? Is it like, what, what is it like for you teaching? Yeah, it's, I mean, I, I love teaching and it's, it's a great joy. It can also be a source of, of frustration. I think my, uh, I, I could handle biblical illiteracy. I can handle all that. My greatest frustration is just apathy. Mm. We mostly teach general education courses. You were talking about this on, on your last uh, show too. And so th- it's a, it's a wonderful challenge to get into a class and have most of them just be there because they have to be. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I, you, you were talking in your last episode about sort of the one thirds of the class, right? One third is going to yep. talk, one third isn't, and one in, and it's the middle third that you're sort of trying to, to win over. And I, I that I think that describes my experience pretty well. I do. I'm I'm lucky in that I pretty much just teach classes on the Bible. Okay. I don't have to. I don't have to broaden out too far beyond that. And I, I love it. I mean, I think when you get into Scripture, the details are so strange and make the assumptions people, the students have about God, about Jesus, about what it means to be a person of faith. It really kind of turns all of that into something other that they've really never considered before. It can upend their expectations. And then you've got them thinking. Mm-hmm. If it goes perfectly, that's how it goes. Yeah. You know, it doesn't that doesn't always work out that way. But I I find our students to be generally very respectful, thoughtful, if you can get them to the point where they're starting to engage the material. But there is there's a lot of there's a lot of biblical. They just they don't have a lot of awareness or sort of a general sense of what a story says Mm -hmm. without a lot of engagement with the details but there's just a, also a sort of a lot of ignorance about what it means to be Catholic. Now, about half of our students are not Catholic, mm-hmm. but you know, students will say things like, "Oh, I'm I'm not I'm not Christian. I'm Catholic." Yeah, you know, and yeah. so that just uh, there's a a lack of awareness there sometimes. That's not necessarily their fault, mm-hmm. but it does does mean you've got you've got a lot of work to do. To, yeah. Um, Sometimes I'll get I'll get a couple of weeks into a course and we'll be talking about Rome, and I suddenly realize half the students think we're talking about the church, mm. but we're talking about the ancient Roman Empire, mm-hmm. and that's my fault for not taking the baby steps that are necessary to make all of that clear. But so I I can't assume a lot. Yeah, uh, is definitely the case. Yeah, yeah. I find does that track does that track with your experience or it, it does. I I mean the the apathy question is a is a real struggle. And I can't always figure out, you know, I, I don't know if there's sort of a consistent source of that apathy or not, because we have, I'm not 100% sure. I think we're probably about 40% Catholic in terms of our student body, but a, another 35, 40% are Protestant and particularly sort of evangelical and some fundamentalist Protestants, not so much mainline Protestants. And so on one hand, there are students for whom you know, like if I ask them about, you know, the, the story of Noah and the flood, they're vaguely familiar with it. You know, they've they've seen one of the movies or, or something like that. Or, or even I mean, yesterday we were talking about Passover 
And so some of them have seen the, the Prince of Egypt. So that's that's their reference point. Right, yeah. And so when I show photos of Char- Charlton Heston, it doesn't, you know, work for them quite as well. I got to update my PowerPoints, I guess. So they have some vague familiarity, but they don't have any kind of in-depth sense of things. And so for some students, getting them to read a text more closely and find all the strange things that they wouldn't otherwise notice is a real struggle. And so we were, I mean, we were doing this with the parables. We were doing the prodigal son parable the other day, and I was trying to show them, you know, how does, you know, if you read this, if you read this on its own, it might read one way. If you read it with the, the lost sheep and the lost coin, it might read a different way. Mm-hmm. And, and for some, it was a great insight. And for some, it was sort of like, why do I care about this? Like, still, yeah. why, why does it matter? Yeah. So I don't know. I, the point you made about taking things for granted, this is a thing I actually struggle with a lot because I teach, you know, I teach one of our sort of intro to Christian Christianity courses. And I haven't in it's my sixth year now teaching this course, and I haven't yet figured out the way I want to teach it. And so I switch it up every year or so. And what I end up finding each year is I cut something because I didn't think I needed it. But it's something that I refer to later in the semester. And so it's like, ah, like, I <laughs> wish I yeah. had kept this in. Right, right. So, like every every time I teach the beginning of Acts, I get mad at myself if I didn't teach the Tower of Babel, for example. Right, right, um, right, right. Yeah. But like, I don't need a whole day on Tower of Babel. I just need it in the back of their mind somewhere. Right. But, sure. Sure. Yeah. So, yeah. Huh. So I don't know. I I I'm not sure exactly the best way to get to the students that I have. And I like you, I mean, I, I teach a lot of the sort of general education service type courses. Mm-hmm. But then every once in a while, you know, I get an upper level majors course and it's 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 such a radically different experience in terms of interest and preparation and background and everything else. And so it makes for odd days when I have both. <laughs> yeah. Well that can be that can be hard. Yeah. I teach some classes. We have a, a program here that we call it the Master Pastoral Theology. Okay. And so we have some lay people in that, but we also do all of the theological training for the diaconate mm-hmm. candidates in our yep. diocese. And so yeah, we do the when same I, thing. When I, yeah, so when I have a weekend when I'm with those people who want to be there, they're mm-hmm. adults, they've got all these questions, and then Monday morning at 9 a.m., <laughs> you're in a class with, with undergrads who really are— yawning and mm-hmm. it's uh that that's a tough transition yeah they read yeah. for the quiz and yeah. yeah but you know in in the big picture i when i think about the kinds of questions i ask of scripture now they have been formed and informed by the conversations when that i've had with my undergraduate students and they they live in a tricky delicate world mm-hmm. and so I, I i try very hard to be as present to that as I can, so I can help them try to figure out how scripture and generally the field of theology and a life of faith can can be helpful and inviting to them. So it doesn't always work, but uh, that's kind of what I strive for. Yeah, I th- yeah, I think that that that's the goal for me too. And I try to pitch it to students in terms of I think some of them come in expecting it to sort of be you know, like a, a slightly higher level CCD or, or something like that. And I do make a point early on. I was like, look, my, my goal here is not, I'm not, you know, trying to convert you in a sort of proselytizing kind of way. I just want you to better understand this tradition, which either if you're part of it will be helpful for you to understand what you think. 
And if you're not part of it, it will help you understand, you know, the 40% of the school and the people you encounter who do participate in this tradition. And some, sometimes that works and sometimes it doesn't. Sure. Yeah. So I'm with you. Yeah. So do you, so you're, you now being full professor, do you have a sense for how your students have changed over the time that you've been at St. Ambrose? Have, have there been kind of noticeable shifts you can see in students or student engagement or student preparation for scripture? I would say the biggest thing that I've seen is the, is the phones. Yeah. Yeah. I know. I noticed this in class reg in general, but I, I noticed it particular. I, I'm lucky enough to have taken, led some study abroad trips to Greece and mm-hmm. there's, they're spaced three years apart. So the first trip I think was back in 2011, 2011, and a lot of students didn't really have smartphones or it was really tricky even to get them to work in a foreign country. Mm-hmm. By the by the next trip, they were integrated into their whole life experience in a way that I found just frightening. Mm-hmm. And so I'm going again this coming January and I'm trying to be much more proactive in thinking about ways to make them put them away mm-hmm. or do something else with them because it it's how they – filter the world. And I, I shouldn't say them because it, it's it's true for me too. But it, I was just, I'm teaching an honors course right now. We, it's team taught with a professor from the philosophy department. We we're having a conversation about, it's and it's on the problem of evil. We were talking about whether their phones are evil. <laughs> and pretty much the whole course, they all, they all agreed that the phones were evil and that they would never give them up. And so I, I know that these are tools of technology that can that can do a lot of good. I just I I fear that they are a barrier to and I don't want to offend anyone by saying this, but to authentic interpersonal relationships mm-hmm. and just to experience of the natural world around you. Yeah. That that's my concern. And so um, and I'm as potentially guilty of those things as anyone. So I, I don't want to be a hypocrite in how I'm putting it forward. But I, to me, that's the biggest thing I've seen change. You walk into the classroom now, the, nobody even bothers to turn the lights on. And, and they're all just, they're all just, <laughs> yeah, they're all just sitting there looking at their phones until I start class. And then, then they, they know to put them away because it's in the syllabus, but it's really, it's, it's amazing. It's yeah. amazing how quickly that has changed. Yeah. I've, and, I've really gone back uh, and forth on the the sort of technology policy and the syllabus. And I, I've had everything from, you know, total ban on, on everything, you know, phones, laptops, tablets, the whole, you know, the whole nine yards. And to this semester, what I tried out is I put a policy that said, you can use whatever you want as long as you're using it for class. And if I think that you're becoming a distraction or becoming distracted, I can, you know, change that for you. And to, to be honest, I don't, I haven't seen an obvious difference in terms of student engagement or the quality of student work between the policies. And I'm not a hundred percent sure for why I think that is, but I think some of it is the students who are, if a student is committed to being distracted, they're going to find a way to be distracted. And Mm -hmm. a student who is, you know, committed to doing the work is going to find a way to do the work. And we, you know, we have so many of our texts now are eBooks and I give a lot of PDFs and nobody prints anything out. Cause yeah. you know, that's just not a thing. Nobody has printers anymore. And so I think it maybe has actually helped, but 
you know, every, probably every other week, there's a student to pull aside of your class and be like, you know, this is becoming a problem for you. Like, we can revisit this next week, but, you know, think about it. So, I don't know. Yeah, I, I don't don't have any laptop policy. I don't care about those for, for those very reasons. A lot, a lot of students need them. Yeah. I think of the phone thing partly is just helping to teach them a life skill. Yeah. There, there are times where it's not appropriate. Yeah. To have to have that out and it's harder now because then it all now just gets pushed to their wrists mm-hmm. with the watch thing. So, but that's partly how I think about it. It's just to help them have a time where it's, it's inappropriate to have, have the, the phone out. So yeah. the technology will change and at some point it probably won't. I have, so. I have found one source of both delight and frustration is one of the classrooms I'm teaching in this semester has terrible Wi-Fi. <laughs> oh, okay. So the students can't really do much with their phones anyway in They're class. Cut off. Yeah. <laughs> so it's frustrating when I, you know, I want them to look up a passage or something and they can't get it right. to load. But other right. than that, it's actually kind of great. <laughs> yeah. Uh, think about that. A cla- if classrooms were like dark classrooms where yeah. they didn't allow uh, connectivity, that'd be interesting. Yeah. So something else I wanted to ask you about, I have a couple of things I want to ask you about. One is, you know, you so you have this new book out, uh, Apocalyptic Ecology, the Book of Revelations Environmental Biography. And so I wanted to ask you, you know, partly what is the, you know, what's the core argument for the text? But then also, like, what is it that brought you to write on this? Yeah, I, I was on sabbatical a few years ago, and I had been working on some topics relating to scripture and ecology. So I, I was sort of generally interested in the topic. I My dissertation is in my first book and some of the work I'd done was related broadly to apocalypticism and creation theology. And so mm. the ecological component was a, I think, a natural way of bringing that into some more modern world relevance. But tackling, <laughs> tackling the book of Revelation in that context seems sort of crazy. In fact, I'm pretty, pretty sure my wife accused me of being crazy for thinking about this idea in the first place. A book that's just replete with destruction of the earth and the entire cosmos and somehow try to have that be helpful ecologically. But, you know, nobody's life is at stake. So I thought, well, I'll try it out. So... <laughs> And, and, you know, what I found, I was pretty amazed, and this was my hunch, but what I found was that when you contextualize the book of Revelation in its ancient Roman context, and then take the time to understand actually what the environmental situation was in the ancient world, Hmm. both in the Hellenistic period leading up to the time of the New Testament, and then in the Roman period, it it, it was an ecological disaster. Hmm. The world was full of all kinds of really... uh, Air pollution, water pollution, it was uh, deforestation, erosion, animal depletion. I mean, it was just, it was, a, it was horrible. Mm-hmm. And so my, my argument suggests that if you understand its, its ancient environmental setting, then when the book of Revelation turns to creation theology and the idea of God as the creator, that, that becomes sort of an anti-imperialistic ideology that may be in part reacting to the destruction of the environment that the that the Romans were engaging in. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's always been read as rejecting Rome, certainly, particularly in regards to the emperor cult. But there was a lot of environmental things that were wrapped up in that, both in the 
propaganda and the imagery that Rome used. They used the images of the stars and the comets and the sun and the moon and, and the whole earth and the in their in their propaganda. Mm-hmm. But but I there's a whole chapter that's partly about the ancient Roman games in the arena and the kind of destruction of animal populations that were going on in those contexts. And um, I think John, uh, the author of Revelation, has those in the background as part of what he is responding to in his rejection of uh, Rome's empire. Was there in in this sort of was was there an ecological consciousness in Rome at the time, or is there um, a sense of responsibility I, or or causality for this? So yes and no. I mean that's that's a good question. It's one that people often ask. I think in a sense, yes, I have some sources in there. Plato, who laments the deforestation he sees around in the hills surrounding Athens. He said Mm. these used to be forests, and now there's nothing there but food for bees. Mm. There are other people who at certain times talk about and sort of lament the destruction of of life in the arena. And these are parts of sort of bigger phenomena in in the Roman world and and, – are tied up with certain Greco-Roman philosophical movements, but 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 they're but they're there. So I don't think it's crazy to think that an ancient person, particularly one attuned to a monotheistic understanding of God as Creator that comes out of the the Jewish and then the the Christian tradition, like like John would have been in, I don't think it's crazy to think that that he could have been aware of what was going on mm. and how that would have, in his view, been opposed to how God wanted the world to flourish. Mm-hmm. So I, I think it's possible, yeah. Now, even if it's not possible, I, I would say my argument can still hold in the, in the broader sense that we, we can, whether he saw it or not, we can see his creation theology as being anti-empire mm-hmm. and then draw an ecological inference about what that means about how we should live our lives. Yeah. So I don't think, I don't think my argument hinges necessarily on the extent to which the author of the book of Revelation was aware of the the implications I'm trying to draw. Sure. Yeah. Sure. That's helpful. That's a helpful distinction. I one of the things that you said in terms of, you know, different authors having, you know, in the ancient world this sort of ecological critique, it it it's striking to me because I you know, I mentioned before that I, I teach diaconate students and I I mostly teach them ethics and I teach a lot of Catholic social teaching as part of that. And one of the things I often encounter with my diaconate students, especially who are who are older, many of whom are retired, you know, and so you know, they got a lot of life experience and they have these sort of nostalgic memories of the way things used to be. I, I hear a lot from them, the varying versions of, you know, the world is going to hell. People today have, you know, are, it's moral decline, et cetera, et cetera. And I, I do find a lot of value in pointing to them past sources within the Christian tradition that have that same narrative about how, you know, just a few generations ago, things were so much better. And now it's now we've all fallen. Yeah. And that kind of the moral nostalgia argument that a lot of them, I don't think, recognize. It's interesting to hear not exactly not an exact parallel, but sort of a comparable thing in terms of past recognition of ecological and environmental problems that I think typically go unheeded. Right. I mean, mm-hmm. this is part of it. I mean, we have just, you know, the other day the, the IPCC has their new report on climate change and, you know, a, yep. a permanent one and a half degree Celsius increase and all that. 
and on on this, I mean, I think you can make a case that there is actual an actual ongoing decline. It's not you know it's not just nostalgia saying that the way I think that there probably is with a moral argument, but. No, but the the problem now is simply one of degree, not necessarily of kind. So one of the things I learned in the research for this book is that that as soon as we became human, uh, we started destroying our environment. And so this is a I mean, it's really true. And I I didn't really know that that I know I've said that at a conference once, too, and everybody laughed. It's not meant to be a laugh line, but I I get why it is. It's not not funny. Ha ha. Oh, I know. But it's. It's really true. It is a deeply human problem, and it's not a modern problem. Mm-hmm. The, what's different in the modern world is the degree to which our inclinations can have an impact on the environment. Mm-hmm. So because of technology and the, the scope of everything, but it's this is a problem that has been it, that is almost at the level of our DNA mm-hmm. in terms of what it is meant to be human. And so that I don't know if that's that's helpful or not. But it does, I think, when you recognize that, you get a better sense of the magnitude of what we're facing. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I, I try to suggest in the book is that we do all of these little things to try to make ourselves feel better mm-hmm. about how we treat the environment. I mean, just personally, the thing I do, I walk to work every day. Mm. And maybe that's going to make some small difference, but it's really not. Yeah. I mean, it's really not going to make any difference. We People drive a Prius or they take shorter showers or they compost. You know, that there's nothing wrong with doing those things. But one of the things the book of Revelation helps us see is that when the problem is empire and is so deeply ingrained in what it means to be human, you can't fix the problem by just nibbling around the edges. Yeah. It need, it's a fundamental change in the entire structure of the edifice of human civilization that is called for. Yeah. That's what happens in the book of Revelation. And my wife told me, she said, that can't be the conclusion to your book. <laughs> but that's what, that's what the book of Revelation says. So <laughs> I don't know. That's interesting. I, I was reading this article the other day by Nadia Delicata about natural law and technology. And she makes this very compelling argument for that. That's very much in line with what you're saying about how, you know, the, the sort of the, the technological mindset, you know, even, even beyond, you know, digital electronic technology, just as a historical, you know, feature of being human that she's, she sort of challenges a little bit, this assumption that that's an inherently good thing. And, you know, makes the case that, you know, reading the the sort of the the genesis of technological approaches, even from the book of Genesis, it it has to do with sort of not always the best impulses. And so the sort of the desire to prolong life doesn't come simply out of, you know, registering the dignity of human life. It also comes from the sort of sense of control and and whatnot. Mm -hmm. And so she makes this point about how the problem one of the problems with the technocratic or techno solutionist mindset is this this line i i whenever i see something like this i and when i'm reading i always write cf jurassic park in the margins because it, it's, right. it's that ian malcolm like just because we can do a thing doesn't mean we should yep. Yep. and she makes this point about having a, a virtuous you know telos a virtuous purpose for why we create why we invent why we design and, I mean, among the you know, sort of causes of ecological 
devastation and I think this mindset that you're talking about this way that humans are always destructive is we don't have that good telos in mind like we're trying mm -hmm. to make ourselves feel better not actually make it better yeah and so I when I when I've given talks on Laudato Si to you know the local parishes one of the points I always make is you know Francis is not saying recycling is bad or new techniques are bad but he's saying these are not solutions to what yeah. is you know fundamentally a distortion in the human heart yeah, that's so. right. That's right. And we uh, we've been talking about this in this honors class on on evil that that I co-teach because we started the class by reading the novel Oryx and Crake by Margaret Atwood. Oh, I don't know that one. And it's a it's fantastic and just puts all of these issues on the table. It, I mean, it deals a lot with eugenics and climate change and things like that. And it's just an incredible book. And so we've been having some really nice conversations about just those those very topics about my the person who teaches with me, the philosopher, she can give them the kind of specific ethical language about how you think about the ends and the means and how you how you navigate that ethically. So, yeah, it's it's important conversations to have. Yeah. Do you have a sense from the book? Do you have, you know, particular recommendations or calls or, you know, insights for those of us living today? Yeah, I I, I want people to. Be con I think one of the things Revelation calls for is a, a genuine connection with the world and the ecosystems that we live in, mm -hmm. that that's one thing that is increasingly hard to do in our world. I want people to claim God as creator, mm -hmm. which is a very difficult thing to do in an age of science. And we are we embrace science and we're supposed to, you know, science tells us things that are true, mm -hmm. but we can't also lose sight of what it means for God to be the creator. That's that's mm -hmm. a really important thing. And then I have, this is a more of a theological thing. I use the work of Catherine Tanner, if, if I understood it correctly, which is that when we think about eschatology, that we think about it not only sort of chronologically, but we always also think about it spatially. Mm. So she does, she does a really great job of explaining this. And in some ways, that's a, what a lot of what the book of Revelation is doing, is it it, it Yes, it's chronological in a broad sense, but really most of what the book does is describe spatial things. Hmm. It describes spaces and physical spaces and arrangements. And so if you shift your eschatology or, or try to include a, a spatial sense of eschatology to, to the extent that that even makes sense, it, I think, can enliven an ecological awareness of of the things that empire does to trample the spaces that we, that we live in mm -hmm. and um, the things with which we have evolved. Yeah. And that that is trampling what God wants the world to be like. So I have a, the, the last chapter, I have a, a quote, which is from a, a children's band called the Okie Dokie brothers. <laughs> <laughs> and it's not spelled like, it's not spelled the way yours is, but uh, you know, <laughs> But the, the line is, the end is just another place to start. Mm. And uh, that's the uh, epigram I have at the beginning of the last chapter. So I think Revelation has a really important legacy for how we think about the environment. And I hope people find it challenging, mm -hmm. I guess is my hope. Is it, if you understand it, it's definitely challenging. <laughs> it, would, it would mean a drastically different way of living. I was at one of the local Lutheran ministers who lives in our neighborhood has a, every other week he has a pub theology where he just kind of gets together with a group and chats and this may be two months ago now but 
but my wife and I went because we're friends with them and we were chatting and, and, you know, his question was sort of like, are you hopeful for the future? Broadly speaking anyway. And one of the things he talked about is, you know, he's like this weekend, like I'm preaching on Amos and like, and he's, and he's very like, he's, and he's very attuned to, you know, environmental questions. And he's like, you know, like I'm going to get, get up in the pulpit. I'm going to talk about Amos and I'm going to be making like very harsh and judgmental claims about the way that we're living and the kind of radical change that's needed. And it was very, it was very searching. It was very striking hearing him talk about it. So hmm. I think we need to be hopeful though, even if it's not always easy. <laughs> yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right. One other thing I wanted to ask about before I go into my, my closing questionnaire is you've mentioned a couple of times your your experience doing service in Belize. And I wanted to ask, maybe this feels a bit out of order at this point, but I wanted to ask, what was it that motivated you to go to Belize? And then what what have you brought from Belize with you in your career as a teacher and scholar? Yeah, it was it was funny. I mean, I was I had been accepted to Princeton and and was had been dating the person I would marry for quite a while. And I just sort of, one of my roommates was going and I think I just had this thought, well, if I'm ever going to do this, it's got to be now because mm-hmm. it's only going to, I may never get the chance again. And so I kind of just decided in the middle of the night, one night sitting around my apartment in Collegeville that I was going to go down there. And so I did, and I deferred from Princeton and it was a, it was a hard year in a lot of ways. What did, um, what did you do while you were there? So I was a volunteer teacher uh, at a at a Catholic high school, kind of way on the western side of Belize, um, right on the border of Guatemala. So Belize is a English speaking country. It was a British colony, but the town that I lived in was almost predominantly Spanish speaking, mm-hmm. mostly populated by refugees from other parts of Central America from various different things. And the rectory where we ate dinner every night used to be housed by Jesuits, and so there were actually two Jesuits who had been killed in that rectory back in the, I think in the 1980s, in the midst of all the the turmoil that was going on in Central America, they would use Belize as a launching point for missions deep into parts of Guatemala. Mm. And that's what was getting them into trouble. So I was, I taught math, which was mostly a disaster because I didn't, (laughs) I'm, I'm terrible at math, but that's what they needed. Mm -hmm. So I'd be up late at night trying to teach myself how to divide fractions Mm. (laughs) and things like that, and then try to teach it the next day. And I, I thought it. I loved it, and I thought if I love teaching math to ninth graders in Central America, this is probably a good confirmation of the vocation I've 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 set for myself. So I just become Catholic, and the people who were running this this parish and this school were a group called the Society of Our Lady of the Most Holy Trinity. Okay, and they were I, I would say a very strict and conservative group, and that made the time extremely difficult. Mm. There were a lot of things I, I think they did that were just awful, quite mm. frankly. there was a, We had a student who was a senior about to graduate, and she got pregnant, and they kicked her out of the school. Mm. So there were a lot of things about it that were hard. In some ways, I kind of cut my Catholic teeth in that, in that setting. Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't have a lot of theological training with which to disagree or argue with them, you know, but it, it was it, the 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 sort of Catholicity of the place was was a challenge. Um, I was there with with a friend and a few other people from Collegeville. So we we were sort of the black sheep because we, you know, 
wanted to be able to have the host be in our hands when we would take it and <laughs> and you know just little things like that that they were they tried to be real strict about so it, it was very very much a formative time now and so that that's all sort of the personal side of it it changes you when you see how people live in a different part of the world when you've grown up in a generally kind of white suburban setting mm-hmm. you see things that you you will never forget and so I think part of what I came away with was a sense of the importance of, of Catholic social teaching. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm very fortunate that here at St. Ambrose, a big part of how we, we're, we're a diocesan school, so we don't have a charism per se, but our charism that, that we cultivate has, is, is about social justice. And so I'm, I, I've had experiences that, that help me understand that and why that's important and something that I've continued to try to engage in and cultivate just in my own uh, life, the life of my family, because of that pretty early on foundational experience. So uh, I just learned a lot about the world from my neighbors in Mm -hmm. Belize, the things that they had been through, the things they had to do to survive was for me just really, really eye opening and amazing and just amazing people down there who I learned a lot from. So good. So I like to close with a questionnaire of what are usually somewhat less serious questions. Right. This is the scary part. <laughs> that's, that's what people say. I don't, I don't know why. <laughs> Number one, this is a question I sometimes ask my students the first day of class as I get to know them. What is the last movie you watched? The last movie I watched? We've been watching more TV shows. I guess, oh, we watched Black Panther as a family a few weeks ago. Okay. Yeah. So uh, that's a good movie. Yeah. Yeah. I, th- I thought it was really great and exciting and really um, some fun, interesting, I think, <laughs> social messages. too. Yeah. So, yeah, I thought it was really well done. Are yeah. you all generally into the Marvel movies or? No, not really. I was never sort of one of those superhero people. OK. But my, my kids are 11 and 8. OK. So they're so. they're at that age and they get into some of them. OK. But I never really got that whole thing. I have friends who are really into it, but yeah. um, I'm sort of kind of around the edges of it. So that's fair. That's fair. All right. Number two, you said that you initially went to college for music. And so I'm hoping you have a good answer to this one. Uh, what is your favorite or your least favorite liturgical song? Uh, this is this is dangerous because my wife is the director of music and liturgy at our parish. <laughs> so. If she listens this far into the podcast, I might get in trouble. <laughs> we sang a song just last week, and I'll forget. Oh, it's I'm very in favor of the overall idea of the song. I think it's uh, I think it's called "The Harvest of Justice." But there's a mm. there's a line in the song that says, "For everyone born a star overhead." Mm-hmm. And I just thought, I don't know. I think that's maybe heretical, um, <laughs> right? Jesus Jesus got a star because he's kind of special. And not that not that we don't all deserve a star in some way, but mm. I just thought, really, is that something? I, I don't know. I just found it a little bit um, annoying. There's another song we sing called I what I forget the name of it, where it says, "God's mercy falls on the just and the right. God's mercy falls on the just and the right." Mm. Anyway, I don't know if you know that song. No, but it, I mean, that it should be unjust and unjust, shouldn't it? Exactly. <laughs> it is a blatant misquoting of scripture to just make you. Make it say what you want it to say. <laughs> and I get very angry. Now, Sorry. now on the, the harvest, 
the Harvest of Justice one, though, on the star, possible alternate reading. Now, I, I don't know the song very well, so I, okay. I, I'd have to look in the text please, and context. Please but give me another uh, interpretation. Is it? Could it be a reference to Abraham and the Covenant? And you'll have oh. descendants as numerous as the stars of the sky. Okay, I suppose it could be. All right. Now, now we have to get into the realm of authorial intent. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm not saying it's written well. And I had... And without without looking at you know the, the the rest of the lyrics, you know that that would be a factor in in that interpretation. But yeah, the the chorus of that song too, and God will delight when we are creators of justice and joy. Mm. That's fine, but even that is sort of I, I like to. For me, theologically, I always want God to be the first mover in that action. Yep. Yeah, and so I find it a little bit, frankly, arrogant. Yeah, it's a little Pelagian. Um, yeah, yeah, and so. Oh, I'm all in favor of social justice, but I just find <laughs> I find that that the theology of that song to be a little uh, problematic. Right. So there's a good reason. So. Number three, you were once on Twitter. You're no longer on Twitter. So do you miss Twitter? Yes and no. <laughs> um, I, there are things about it, like if there's breaking news, mm-hmm. sometimes I'm in the basement alone at night watching a sporting event and I'll miss some kind of banter about the, the match mm. uh, game that that I kind of miss. But really, no, it is it has made my life better to have quit. I found t- Twitter something that produced in me anxiety. Okay. Something that it's funny. It's really it was the. I mean, I tend to be kind of more I don't like to think in terms of like left and right, whatever. But I tend to be, you know, probably more progressive in my theological ideas. It, it was the people on the, the quote unquote left that really were driving me crazy. Hmm. And I just found that so much of it to be uncharitable yeah. and so much taking of umbrage. And, and then in addition to that, then just so much self-promotion. And that's part of what I was trying to do. And maybe I'm yeah. just not good at it. Yeah. And I understand that that's part of what it's there for as a platform. But it just, for me, was not healthy. I was, I was addicted to it, yeah. to be perfectly honest. I just looked at it too much. Yeah. So it was kind of hard to at first, but, but now that I'm out of it, I'm, I'm really, it feels like I, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that I did. And I, I really appreciated the conversation you had in your last episode, because I think it made, it forced me to rethink some of the theological reasons for which it's important for theologians to engage on mm-hmm. that platform. And, and I, I, I appreciate that, but that, I guess, doesn't mean that it's, it's for me. And so yeah. uh, I'm glad that, I'm glad that I did it. I know that a lot of good comes out of it. I I have really good friends who I met on there. So there were good things about it, but I am glad that, that I left it. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah, I, I think a lot about my social media engagement and I, I don't think that I would leave Twitter unless I left social media entirely. I think it's probably the thing I would hold on to the longest, Yeah. but I do think about it a lot in terms of this is the, the platform in which, you know, some of my virtues are tested and challenged and like, this is the one I have to wrestle with. And I, I find value in that, uh, in that struggle part of it too. And I don't always succeed, but, but it is part of how I think about it. Whereas to be honest, and it, it sounds, it seems strange to me because I, I have a lot more connections on Facebook and a lot more history on Facebook. I do feel like I could give up Facebook permanently and it wouldn't really bother me. And I, I've, I've gone off Facebook repeatedly, probably going to go off soon again, actually. But yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I quit that too, for the most part, although I did as part of a midlife crisis, decided I needed to become a fisher, 
person. And so <laughs> I bought a I bought a used fishing boat and I went I had to reactivate my Facebook account because I was finding some really helpful fishing forums. <laughs> And I got sucked back into it a little bit, but uh, I just deactivated it again a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. So my wife is yeah. very active on the uh, backyard chickens uh, Facebook groups. So oh yeah, okay, yeah. That that's another. I mean, it it's it can be so powerful and so helpful. I just don't know if it's a net overall positive. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, it right. might be. Question four: Of whom or what would you be the patron saint? Does it have to be something that? For which there is no patron saint? Nope, nope. Entirely I mean, up my, to you. My first, I, you know, I think Andrew and Peter are the patron saints of people who fish. But this has been something that's been new for me. So I'm thinking I want to say, or let, I'll, no, I'll, I'll change it. I want to be the patron saint of leading student tours to Greece. Okay. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that one's available. So. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's available. It's one of my favorite things to do. I love it. And Greece changed my life. And to get to participate in a little bit of that for for my students is pretty amazing. So how long are the student trips? The one that I take is 21 days. Wow. We right after Christmas. So it's a long time. We're there a long time. Yeah. And uh, that's pretty fun. So do you are there other professors that you go with or other staff or? Well, I mean, it's part of why it's fun. But I go with somebody who's like one of my very, very best friends who is actually my roommate in Greece. He mm-hmm. teaches psychology at St. Thomas up in St. Paul. Mm-hmm. So he he is my sort of support person. Okay. And yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. So I'll go with that one. All right. And last question. What food do you miss most from Belize? Oh, boy. Can I say the Guatemalan beer? No. Yeah, uh, <laughs> that's fair. <laughs> uh, no, they, you were on the border. It's fair. <laughs> they made well at late at night you could go to there were lots of uh, Chinese restaurants there's a huge Taiwanese population mm. in Belize and they would have you could you they would call it like one two three four or five dollar chicken mm. so you told them a dollar amount <laughs> and then you, get, you would get an amount of fried chicken based on your dollar amount and and some rice usually some fried rice so we would do that sometimes late at night but we, we had a wonderful cook in the rectory who on Thursday nights would make homemade tortillas mm. and uh, Doña Betty. And uh, I have the, she gave me her recipe and I've tried to make them and they did not turn out right. Mm. Probably because I didn't start with lard. Yeah. Makes but they difference. were, they were amazing. Yeah. Wonderful. So, well, Micah, thank you so much for talking with me today. Yeah. Thank you so much. This is a great venue that you have and I appreciate the time. The Daily Theology Podcast was produced this week by me, Stephen Oakey. Special thanks to Liturgical Press, who made possible the giveaways for Daniela Jupan Jerome's Connecting Towards Communion, and Micah Keel's Apocalyptic Ecology. The music for the podcast was created by Matt Hines of the band Eastern Sea. If you haven't checked them out on Spotify yet, then make that your resolution in the new year. If you like the podcast so much you would like to support us with a few dollars, go over to patreon.com slash dtpodcast. These pledges help us to cover the cost of hosting the podcast, and hopefully in the future will enable us to get some recording equipment that will enable us to do live podcast events. Of course, if you want to know more about faith-seeking understanding in everyday life, head on over to our website, dailytheology.org 
our Facebook page, Daily Theology, or our Twitter feed, at Daily Theo.